Hey dudes, before we get started, I wanted to tell you that thanks to Jessica, a cool listener who wrote in with this idea, we now have a Patrama Party Facebook group. Jessica was like, hey, I would love a forum where we can talk about what's been working for us and what we need help with. And I was like, holy shit, great idea. So anyway, if you're into that and you're on Facebook, join the group. Just search the Patrama Party under groups. Et voila. All right, here we go. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where dropping Molly is just that memory from cheer practice when Molly ended up on the fucking ground and broke her arm. I was never a cheerleader, but I saw that shit happen. So grab your pleated mini skirt and your peppermint schnapps and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about learning to trust ourselves again. Shout out to Mara, a super cool listener who suggested this topic. This is, it's honestly such a big deal and it sounds so easy, right? Like it sounds like you should just be able to go, what do I want? What do I feel? And yet for so many of us, it's just not how it works especially if you experienced chronic trauma as a child, if you learned to become a people pleaser or a fawner, if you were parentified and you learned that your parents or your siblings needs were more important than yours, or if you just made a mistake or a decision that you later super regretted, you can be left feeling like, how do I know that I can make good decisions for myself? Who even am I? You know, how do I know that what I want is really what I want and not just me trying to avoid conflict or, you know, gain approval or whatever. In other words, there are so many pitfalls that can get in the way of feeling like we can trust ourselves, especially when child abuse was part of the equation. So to help us get clarity on how we recenter and get back to a place of really trusting ourselves, I'm so happy to welcome registered psychotherapist and trauma specialist, Amelia Pajoles to the show. Hi, Amelia. Welcome. Hi, Remy. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's I I've mentioned this to you, but like, I mean, I geek out on all of these topics, but I'm like, I feel like this one has been such a big one for me in the last year to two years of of like really going into some deep learning around this. So I'm super fucking excited to have you on. But before we get started, I do want to just kind of chat for a minute about your astrology. You are a Libra. I am a Libra. And do you feel like a Libra? Are you like, yeah, that's me? Or are you like, meh, not really? No, I definitely feel like a Libra. I've always, I find it really hard to make decisions sometimes because I'm constantly weighing both options. So it's it's almost like I, I just want both. Totally. Right? I, I don't want just one. I want I want both of the things. And I think that's so characteristic. Yeah, I have a Libra moon. So I super relate to that. I relate to that um, inability to make decisions. But also, I think the beauty of Libra, that's the other side of that coin, and especially for being a therapist, is that Libra's, you know, the um, the symbol is Lady Justice. The symbol of Libra is the the woman with the scales, because her whole thing is, I look at all sides of this. And I come to the decision that is the most just. So as a therapist, I feel like that's a really beautiful thing to be able to see the, all the different sides and the different angles and kind of understand that things aren't black and white. And, you know, I think you, you would know better than I would, but I, but I think that's maybe something that could be really useful as a therapist. 
You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I didn't even think of it from that perspective, but so much of my work is saying to clients, okay, let's take this belief that you have, or let's take this understanding that you have, and let's look at it from every single angle so that you can then decide, do you want to keep this belief or is this belief just complete BS and you want to let it go? So, you know, that really does, it's such a huge part of my work doing this kind of investigating and then, and then they get to pick, but even the justice piece, if I think about the type of populations that I work with, it's folks who have experienced crime, folks who have been, who have been victimized. And it's about, you know, I'm not, I'm not pushing people to make reports or do any of that, but it's finding their own justice, finding their own peace. Right. And that's, that is such a big part of trauma recovery is like, I get in the corner of my own justice now. I'm in my, I now occupy the space of I deserve a just life. And and that's, I love that we're starting with this, with this topic, because that's part of learning to trust yourself again is saying like, oh, wow, a wrong was done. And instead of being like, that's okay, <laughs> that's fine. Like now we go, mm, nope, not okay. We're going to take a different um it's not even a different view. It's like, we're going to move through this differently. We're different actions. We're going to show up in a different way. So I'm absolutely thrilled to get into this with you. I'm going to talk about my experience on the topic for a bit. While I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, epiphanies, winning lotto numbers, you know, (laughs) or just sit back, chill out, eat a burrito, whatever feels good. Either way at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay. Tight. Here we go. So I'll start with childhood because that's definitely my point of origin when it comes to not trusting myself. One thing I've realized in retrospect is that in order to emotionally survive my family as a little girl, rose-colored glasses were necessary and people-pleasing was mandatory. I couldn't look honestly at what was happening in my family because I wasn't emotionally equipped at that age to handle it. And I couldn't be honest about my feelings or needs because that led to punishment. So there was a lot of projecting a fantasy onto my parents and that fantasy kept me safe. And there was a lot of betraying myself in order to get my need for safety met. I did this a lot with my dad. I looked around and kept seeing dads that really loved their daughters or, or, you know, at the very least paid child support. Right. But that wasn't my dad. He wasn't emotionally supportive and he wasn't financially supportive. At the very best, he would give us these sort of glimpses of affection, usually when he was high or drunk. My dad is an addict. When he was sober, that's when he was really scary, which was also sort of, um, I don't know, uh, kind of a mind fuck, right? That like my dad's, my dad kind of only likes me when he's high. When I was super little and too young to be a people pleaser, you know, like three or four, I quickly learned that any emotion I had that wasn't just shutting the fuck up was going to result in punishment with my dad. Generally speaking, he didn't approve of me and nothing I did worked. As I got older, like even six, seven years old, I started fawning super hard with my dad. Like if it were an Olympic sport, I would have gotten gold. I was the queen fawner because I was so terrified of him. And the fantasy that I was entertaining as I was doing this was that my dad actually really loved me, but just didn't know how to show it, which of course 
of course, that's what I thought, right? Of course, I created that narrative. I didn't know how narcissism worked at the time, obviously. And I wouldn't have been able to understand that anyway, right? Like a child needs to feel loved in order to flourish. And since my dad couldn't give me that, I created it in my imagination and I used it to justify his behavior, whether it was verbal violence or neglect or whatever it was. So in other words, this critical relationship, my relationship with my dad was one of my training grounds for lying to myself in relationships with others and telling myself they were treating me badly because they loved me so much that it overwhelms them. And they didn't know how to deal with that, which by the way, was a narrative I would take into dating and it was delusional and it was sad. And it kept me involved with people who treated me like shit, which made me deeply distrust myself when it came to making good choices in romantic relationships. The story with my mom was similar, but different. My mom was capable of real affection and approval and even sometimes soothing me when I was having big feelings. It wasn't consistent. I sort of never knew what version of her I might get, but at least there was the chance that I might get my needs met. Whereas with my dad, there was just no chance. What I learned with my mom, though, especially as I got older, was that I had a much higher chance of being approved of and feeling loved by her if I was happy and cheerful and always approving of whatever she was doing. If I was depressed or in pain or angry, that's when I got shut down by my mom. So I learned to preemptively shut those things down. I learned to do all the things that looked good on paper and make sure no one saw the other stuff. Like, not just her, but anyone. <laughs> in middle school and high school, I was like maniacally joining clubs. I was captain of the dance team. I belonged to a different dance team, like in a, in a studio outside of school. I was the class president. I was in choir. I was in all the honors classes, making straight A's. But then I would come home and close my door and sob in the dark. So this was another way that I was trained to betray myself, which led to feeling like I couldn't trust myself later down the road, right? I felt like I... I couldn't accept, much less embrace my rage, my depression, any of those difficult emotions. I learned so early on that those were bad and wouldn't get me the love I wanted. So I hid them away. I compartmentalized. And what's interesting is that as a teen and in my early 20s, there was never a part of me that was like, I don't trust myself because I push my big, difficult feelings away. No, the belief was I can't trust myself because I have these big feelings, this despair, this depression, this rage, that's the part of me that's problematic. But then as I got older and looked around at people who had boundaries, these were people who were in touch with those difficult feelings, like particularly their rage. <laughs> and suddenly I felt like a double loser. I was a loser for having all these big painful feelings and I was a loser because I was never able to act on behalf of those feelings, right? I defaulted to people pleasing again and again and again, which made me feel like I couldn't trust myself because I wasn't really being honest with people and I wasn't being honest with myself. So here's another piece of this for me. One of the things my mom used to say when I was growing up was that I was using her. I needed money for food. I needed money for clothes. I needed rides to places. I wanted dance classes. I was just using her. That's what she would say. This was coupled with things like I could have been really successful if it hadn't been for you girls. I would have been really famous in my profession. And these moments were paired with threats that she was going to send us to live with our dad. So the messaging was, you're a burden. Your needs are a burden. And I'd be better off if you were gone. 
So that's one way that it looked. But here's an example of kind of another. When I was 16, we lived across the street from my high school. And one day I went to school and I got to the front steps and suddenly got hit with such terrible period cramps that I thought I was going to pass out. So I sat down on the steps and I just couldn't move. I could hardly talk. I was like nauseous, dizzy. I was in so much pain. I could barely see. If I stood up, I started to black out. Someone spotted me there and told my boyfriend. Well, actually, he told my boyfriend that I seemed really high. (laughs) That's verbatim what he said. And my boyfriend was like, "Mm, that doesn't sound right. And he came running over to see what was happening and basically, you know, found me there kind of like this mess this puddle on the ground and had to carry me to my house. And I was sobbing the whole way. I just, I was in so much pain. By the time he got me inside, I was like scream sobbing. It was more pain than I'd ever experienced at that point. My mom came into my room while my boyfriend was tucking me in and she just shot me this disapproving look and walked out. She didn't ask if I needed anything. She didn't bring me a glass of water or ibuprofen. She didn't comfort me, just nothing. And later when I was feeling better and was back up and running, she made this snide remark about it. She was like, what the hell was that all about? You didn't have to scream like that. So again, it was that messaging that I was a burden, not only when I was sad or angry or in pain in whatever way, but just generally when I had needs that were taxing for my mom, it was annoying to her and she didn't have time for it. So I needed to hide it away and not show her. And in fact, not show anyone, which was what I was trying to do that day. And it just didn't work. This was coupled with the fact that my mom parentified us super hard. I have two episodes on parentification, if you're not sure what that is. But essentially, it's when parents force children into the role of the parent, right? You are parenting the parent. That can look a lot of different ways. But for me, it looked like always being attuned to and taking care of my mom's emotional needs, even though my emotional needs were not getting met. With both my parents, it was super important that I watch their moods and be sensitive to whatever feeling they were experiencing in that moment so that I could avoid, you know, verbal abuse, essentially. But with my mom, especially, I became an expert at reading the room. I knew when my mom was sad, when she was about to explode, when she disapproved of something. I knew when to comfort her, when to back off, when to get excited along with her. I got really good at that. So taken all together, there was a lot going on in my relationship with my mom that pulled me away from my authenticity and from knowing myself. I pushed away my difficult emotions so that they wouldn't upset her. I learned that my needs were a burden and I became what I call, maybe there's a a term for this, I don't know, but what I call pathologically empathetic, meaning I tuned into her needs and feelings, not out of love and care, but because I was abused into it. I did it as a means of emotional survival, a way to avoid punishment. And once I knew what her needs were, I prioritized them way above mine. In fact, I didn't even know what my needs were because it didn't matter. It didn't matter what my needs were, right? Like what mattered was that I keep mom happy and that's how I know I'll be safe. So all of that was going on. And I was, again, projecting this fantasy onto my relationship with my mom, wearing these rose-colored glasses so that I could feel like things were great and that my mom was the protagonist of the story, right? She was this tender flower that I needed to take care of. It was okay when she lashed out or acted like, you know, my debilitating period cramps were annoying 
or or in whatever way made me feel like a burden. The real issue was that she had been abused as a child and that needed to be my focus. Remy who? So this is what it looked like as a kid. And what happened was that it trained me to really put other people's feelings and needs over mine, to hide my emotions and to assume that I was wrong if I was upset about something or you know, that I would just be punished if I, if I spoke up for myself, essentially it taught me not to advocate for myself at all. I think part of this too is while I was doing that, I was also sort of creating this pattern of if I can convince you that I'm fine, if I can lie through my teeth and be like, no, everything's fine. Then maybe this problem will all go away because sometimes what would happen is like, if my mom got a whiff of me being mad or upset she would go do you have anything to say right now and i would say no 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 i'm i'm fine i'm totally fine right so it was like if i can convince you that i'm fine and i have no anger and i have no sadness then everything will be okay right so i remember one time when i was 10 i decided to move in with my dad a little background my mom my sister and i had moved from austin to la when i was 8 And when I was 10, I decided I was too sad in LA and I wanted to move back to Austin, which meant that I had to move in with my dad because he was in Austin. I had never lived with my dad before and I was an emotional wreck once I got there. But you know who never knew that? Literally anyone. (laughs) I mean, I did not tell a soul. I would get terrible stress stomach aches in the morning before I biked to school. I mean, terrible, like couldn't move. I would double over on the couch and just, you know, grit my teeth and wait for them to subside. I would hold in like painful yelps so that my dad and his girlfriend who were always asleep at that hour wouldn't wake up. And once I could like barely manage to get on my bike, I'd go to school and pretend it never happened. Never tell anyone. I didn't want to upset anyone with my needs or, you know, I didn't, I didn't want my dad to get mad at me. And when my dad about a month into me living there asked me if I miss my mom, I lied right through my teeth and said, Nope, never. I've never missed her at all. Like I'm perfectly happy. I was so unhappy. I would cry every night, but my feelings didn't matter. What mattered was not hurting my dad's feelings, right? I thought if I told him that I miss my mom, he would feel bad about his parenting. And that was the priority. My dad was the priority. The adults were the priority. And when that's your come from, and you're sort of groomed for that as a child, you grow up unconsciously bringing people into your life who were into that dynamic or anyway, that was my experience, right? When part of your vibe is I don't hold other people accountable or have expectations that my needs are respected or that my generosity is reciprocated. People who don't reciprocate, don't respect your needs and don't want to be accountable for their actions will start to fill in the spaces around you. And when you can't trust yourself to be authentic and in your power, you continue to accommodate them to make it so that they can stay, right? Like you'll bend over backwards to keep those people around. That was my story. That was my experience. So I want to turn to what this looked like for me as an adult and how this fits into the bigger conversation of not trusting ourselves. I'll start with a romantic situation. Can we pause for a sec? It sounds like a lot of what you were going through when you were a child or the way you learned to um, to cope with all of this is you were fawning, which means that it wasn't actually a choice. You were in a you were in a dangerous situation for a child. You rely on your parents 
And you've got parents who are very unpredictable. And so you need to find a way to be able to survive in this completely unpredictable environment. And so you went hyper into your senses. You went into trying to figure out what mood are they in? How can I make sure that they're happy? And that is the definition of the fawn response. So if we're in, you've probably talked about this on other podcasts, but just a a quick recap. If we're in a dangerous situation, we've got this absolutely fascinating survival mechanism that's biologically wired into us that allows our brain to, in an instant, scan the environment. And before we can even assess or logically comprehend what's happening, we come up with a course of action. And so we either run away. That's the most adaptive one, except for when you're a child, because you have nowhere to go and you don't have the money to take you there. You fight it, which isn't possible again, when you're a child and you've got parents who are acting towards you the way they are, they're, they're not going to take it. It's going to make things worse. You can freeze, you can play dead, but that's not going to work in this situation. And so you fawn, you feed the bear, you make the bear's bed, you make sure that the bear is comfortable so that they don't turn around and attack you. And so I'm hearing a lot of this, you know, I was, um, I kind of, I, I realized that this is what I had to do. I think so much of this for you when you were a child was actually happening without you even thinking it. It was just, that was your normal. That was what life was. And so I have a feeling that I can already tell where you're going to go with how this is panning out in your, or how it was panning out in your adult life is that you carried it with you because that's what you believe to be your homeostasis. That's where you felt most comfortable. That's how you felt like you were safe. Yeah. hundred fucking thousand percent. And I love what you say about like you, you didn't even realize you were doing it. This has been the piece for me. That's been so huge in the last couple of years as I've unraveled this is unlearning what I learned, right? That's why I I wanted to mention a couple of times the rose colored glasses, because when you are a fawner, part of that, well, I don't want to speak for everyone. This is my experience. I wasn't just fawning and then going, um, oh, fuck, I have to do this to survive. I was fawning and going, they love me so much and they are the best parents that anyone could ever have. And like, it was a process of learning to lie to myself and that fawning was such a key part of it. And the other part of it was not knowing that I was fawning, right? Exactly what you said. And then yes, absolutely. That becomes the pattern going forward. And so much of it is just, you're going through the motion. It's like a, um, it's muscle memory. You just have done it for so long that you don't know to do anything else. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Amelia. That's exactly it. Those rose-colored glasses are also dissociation, which is what you needed in order to actually survive this. You can't think, oh, no, these parents are really, you know, I'm not feeling, I'm not emotionally safe here. They're not, this isn't a nurturing environment. You have to think these people are incredible and they're doing all of this because they love me because you have no other option. So you're dissociating from the reality of it. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm having like a... I'm, I'm having a mind blown moment because yeah, there's a fucking technical term for this. It's dissociation. Yeah. Shit. Yes. That is exactly it. And I, and so in this bigger conversation of trusting ourselves, if we are well-practiced in dissociation, how can we trust ourselves to make decisions about the reality in front of us? If we're not facing the reality, right? 
I mean, wow. Yeah, that is so powerful. Thank you so much for adding that. Yeah, that's such a good piece. Um, okay, so let me take a minute to like have this like crazy awareness moment. Okay, so let me go back to what I was saying. Right, this romantic situation, which is, you know, anytime romance is involved and we're on a trauma podcast, you already know it's going to be a fucking bummer. So years ago, there was a guy, I I think I've mentioned him on here before. We met through friends and we started hooking up not long after. And my impression of him, this I was 19 when I met him, I was quite young. And my impression of him was that he was shy and sensitive and a musician and a really sweet person. So the first thing I did was what I had done for years in my family. I put on rose colored glasses, I dissociated. And I projected a story onto him without reading the room for facts, right? I loved the idea of him being this sweet, sensitive, loyal person who was in love with me and only me. (laughs) And so I projected that story onto him without really knowing him. And so was this guy shy? Yeah, he was kind of introverted. Did that mean that he was sweet? No, (laughs) no, but that's what I wanted it to mean. I had a fantasy that he was my own personal Jeff Buckley, just overflowing with huge emotions for me in particular, feelings that he couldn't show me because he was just too shy, you know, kind of sounds like my dad, right? That was the fantasy when actually he started stringing me along, hooking up with lots of other women, using me for sex, flirting with other women in front of me, like blatantly, and then would act like I was crazy when I would be like, hey, this hurts my feelings. One time... Uh, when he was visiting town, we went to college in different cities. He was visiting town, right? And he said he would drive out to my house to have a night with me. And then he didn't. And I was like, hello, (laughs) remember me? And he was like, you're so needy and demanding. (laughs) Another time years later, because, oh yes, I made space for him in my life for 10 fucking years. I was sleeping with this dude for 10 years and not because the sex was good. It was not. So anyway, one time years later, I was like, I feel like you don't care about me because we have sex and then I don't hear from you for like a month. And he literally said, that's just stupid. You're being stupid. That's verbatim what he said to me, which I mean, fuck, literally could not have dovetailed more perfectly with my trauma and the beliefs I had about my feelings and needs, right? Like I didn't walk out of there at that moment and never look back because I already believed that. I already believe that my needs and sadness and depression and insecurity were stupid and annoying and over the top. I'd learned that with my mom. So when he said that, I was like, you're right. I know. I know my feelings are stupid. I mean, talk about betraying myself and not being able to trust myself to make a good decision, right? So like I said, this went on for 10 years and especially after like five years of just being worn down in the cycle of feeling demeaned by him, you know, I would hook up with him, feel like shit afterwards, feel used, feel degraded, feel worthless. I would promise myself over and over again that I would never sleep with him again. And then a month later, when he would hit me up, I would sleep with him again. And this was so excruciating for me. I felt so out of control. I felt so depressed. I felt so fucked up and flawed. I started going to love and sex addicts anonymous meetings around this time to try to get help because it really did feel like an addiction. But the deeper thing for me was what's wrong with me that I can't trust myself to stay away from this guy who really treats me like I don't matter. Right. 
who really treats me like I'm only good for sex. I get nothing out of this. I feel worthless and unloved. The sex isn't even good. And it's not like we stay up all night having mind-blowing conversation. He falls asleep and then I drive home at three in the morning crying. I think what was so hard for me to see at the time was that I was living out a pattern that had been deeply ingrained into my psyche, right? This is kind of what we were just talking about, Amelia. In so many ways, my feelings and needs didn't matter to my parents when I was a child. The whole dynamic was about pleasing them. But as a young adult, I wasn't conscious that I'd been programmed that way, right? I didn't know it. I didn't know I'd had to create a fantasy in order to survive my childhood or dissociate or fawn or make a habit of betraying myself. And because I didn't know any of those things, to me, my I, I, I just got really judgmental about my behavior. I was like, you're crazy. You're fucked up, right? I just thought like, I can't trust myself to make good decisions. There's something wrong with me. That was really at the core. There's something wrong with me. I can't trust myself. But here's a big piece of what I've realized around this as I've done some growing. When you're a child, it's a parent's job to see, validate, and respect you. Yeah. Thank you, Amelia. Yeah. And the reason parents need to do that, I mean, it's just good parenting, but it's because it teaches children how to do it for themselves. And it teaches them what it feels like. It is. It teaches them to associate that with love, right? It teaches kids how to get in their own corner. When parents don't do that, when instead they ignore or invalidate or shame their children, especially when the child is having big feelings come up, those children not only can't do that for themselves as adults, without intervention, but they look to other people to try to get that validation because they still need it, right? They never got it. It's an unmet need that they still carry. So they're like, this is me, right? Hey, dude, I'm sleeping with, can you validate me? It feels kind of validating that you like sex with me. So I guess I'll ignore that you're manipulating me and using me and degrading me because I'm so starving to feel like I matter, that the fact that you have any sexual interest in me, even though that sets the bar so incredibly low, is enough for me to jump in bed with you over and over and over again in order to get that tiny bit of validation, even though I feel like shit every time, because something is better than nothing at all. And since I can't give myself validation because I never learned how, I rely on these outside sources to get it. That was what was going on with me. And it's a pattern that when we're doing it, we're not aware of. It's all unconscious. It's when we start to get awareness that we can change the dynamic. But what I want to say first is that I had so much shame around these cycles. I felt so fucked up and like such a bad person, such a bad feminist, like damaged goods, you know, some like an awesome guy would never go for someone like me, right? Because I couldn't trust myself to make good decisions, to stand up for myself, to have healthy boundaries, to respect myself. But the reality is I truly was doing the best I could. I had absolutely zero idea what it looked like to ask myself what I really wanted, to care for my inner child, to value my needs over someone else's, to validate myself. And those are a practice, right? Like you can't go to the store and be like, how much is a self-validation? Okay, cool. Like, I can mark that off the list. No, it takes years of therapy and work and trial and error and making new choices. But at that stage in my life, I hadn't gotten any of that. I was the fish who had no idea what water was. Water for me then was fawning. It was people pleasing. It was ignoring red flags. It was dissociating. 
It was neglecting my needs and shaming myself. It was all the things that made me feel like I couldn't trust my choices. But let me come back to this idea. First, here's an example with a roommate I had. This is a more recent example, and it kind of shows the evolution that I've been going through, right? I think I talked about this incident on the shadow integration episode. So here's the story. Uh, I put an ad on Craigslist because we had a room opening up in our house and I interviewed someone for the room. She seemed really great. One of the things I asked in that interview was, how are you about cleanliness? And would you be down for our chore chart? Right. We have a chore chart. We split the chores in the house evenly and we each do a couple chores every week. And she was like, totally. I'm totally on board with that. And I was like, awesome. But after she moved in, she was like, JK, no chores for me. The first time I asked her about it, I was like, hey, I noticed you haven't been doing your chores and I wanted to check in. She started sobbing and said she felt so ashamed and asked me to hold her while she cried for an hour. And that really primed me to go into the same mode I would go into with my mom because my mom also had those really intense emotional responses. And my role was to take care of those emotions as a kid, right? Like take care of my mom. My number one responsibility was to be my mom's emotional caretaker. So anyway, back to my roommate, I went straight into what I knew, right? I comforted my roommate. I took an hour out of my day that I didn't have to make her you know, sort of intense emotional response to me checking in about the chores, the priority of my day. To show a kind of compare and contrast, if that happened again now, I might say something like, hey, it looks like this is bringing up a lot for you. So I'm going to let you take a minute to take care of yourself. Let's check back in tomorrow. But instead, I held her. I rocked her. I told her it was okay. She had nothing to be ashamed of. I could see that she was a really beautiful person. I did all the stuff I used to do with my mom. I abandoned my needs and made her the focus. But of course, that didn't change anything with the chores. She just kept not doing her chores. And when I brought it up a second time, she sent me this long text saying that I was controlling. I was fucked up. I was acting like it was just my house. She didn't think she should have to do chores every week. And if I didn't like that, I could move the fuck out. And in that moment, I really went into this spiral where I wondered, am I controlling is there something wrong with me? Did I fuck up here? It was so hard to just trust that my needs were valid and that I had every right to ask for reciprocity and to expect someone to keep their agreement. And so that's how I showed up to the conversation when we had a house meeting a few hours later. Never once in that conversation did I say, hey, it is not okay to talk to me the way you talked to me today. It was disrespectful. I realize you have a lot of trauma that comes up for you, but it's not an excuse for verbal violence and disrespect in this house. If that's not something you can get on board with, you have to leave. I didn't do that. And the situation with her, though it changed in appearance and she did eventually start doing her chores, it never really got better. There was a lot of walking on eggshells in the house. Finally, a year later, a year into, you know, like serious uh, therapy and working with a coach and all kinds of things. I got very clear in my understanding that I deserve to live in a home where I felt deeply safe and wasn't walking on eggshells around someone who was showing up with emotional, um, like being emotionally erratic and verbally violent and who had also been physically violent with multiple people that we knew. So eventually my other roommate and I together asked her to move out and she did. And my living situation improved astronomically, but it required this new trust in my feelings 
trust in my discomfort with the situation, trust that I had a right to my needs and trust that I was safe in myself to act on my own behalf. She was going to have whatever reaction she was going to have. But for me, it was about letting her reaction slide off me as best I could, not being able to get manipulated or bullied out of my feelings, knowing in my gut without a doubt that I had the right to show up in my authenticity. And that new belief, I have the right to my needs. I trust my needs and I deserve relationships and situations that meet my needs is now such a huge part of my life. I don't have to make other people comfortable. And I think in that situation with my roommate, I want to say she was someone who was, um, I think, emotionally tortured in a lot of ways. But because of my parents and the fact, you know, my parents also had mental illness and they both came from abusive homes. So the storyline I'd created was, well, you don't really have to treat me with with respect and kindness if you had trauma in your life. I'll make up. I'll give you a pass because you had something really horrible happen to you. But you know who else grew up in trauma? Me, (laughs) you know, and and I'm not um, asking other people to be on the other end of that, right? I'm not disrespecting them. I'm not bullying them or or being verbally violent. And so it, it's this new come from coming out of that sort of delusion of my childhood and into this space of being like, I don't have to fawn or people, please. I don't have to believe anyone who tries to convince me that I'm too much or I'm controlling or I'm being stupid, whatever people throw at me to try to throw me off and avoid taking responsibility for their actions. You know, like I'm like Neo in the matrix with that shit now. Like, that's not mine. I'm not taking it on. I mean, I shouldn't be that cocky, right? There's still moments where I can feel those old patterns want to pop up and take the reins, but I catch it so much faster now. And it really has changed my relationship to myself and my ability to trust myself. So I'll end with a few things to focus on that when it comes to healing this, and I just want to say, this is what has worked for me. This may not work for everyone, but I'll, I'll share what's worked for me. Um, and, and, and these things can be kind of divided into two categories. The first one is to focus on the inside, right? The internal looking inside yourself, the, in, the internal changes to make one way to do that, that I think would be super helpful is to get really familiar with what happened to you early on that put a wedge between what was true for you and how you were showing up. What happened in your life that taught you to make a habit of betraying yourself, Were you gaslit? Were you shamed? Were you bullied? Were you stonewalled and given the cold shoulder when you had big feelings or needs or a differing opinion from the adults around you? Really get to know what happened and what stories and beliefs you created to make sense of it. And also what coping strategies you created to survive it. Maybe you did a 180 for me, right? Maybe instead of fawning, you shut everyone out and would run at the first sign that something was off. And now you can't trust yourself to stick around and work through conflict. The work is not to judge yourself about that stuff. It's just to be really honest with yourself so that you can start to unravel it. And I can't emphasize the need for honesty enough because you can't become aware and start to dismantle something you're not admitting to. If you're still dissociating, right? And pretending the problem isn't there, you just can't work through it. You So you owe it to yourself to be unflinching in your honesty. That's number one, clarity about what happened, what you came to believe and how it shows up for you today. Another piece of going inside is figuring out what you like and what you don't. Unfortunately for a lot of us, we got so good at tuning into what other people liked and wanted that we just lost touch with our values and what we need to feel safe 
what we need to feel happy, what what makes us feel unsafe, right? All of this kind of just like goes out the door. So one thing that could help here, I saw this on an Insta account called The Holistic Psychologist. She recommended getting a piece of paper and writing things that matter to me at the top and then writing out what matters to you. What matters in romantic connections? What matters in friendships? What matters in a job, in a living situation? I recently got very clear that yelling is a hard no for me because I immediately feel unsafe. I also recently realized that reciprocated generosity is really important to me and makes me feel super safe and happy with others. And one last thing I'll say about doing that internal work is that I have a coach who like a year ago put me on a daily affirmation regimen, but the affirmations weren't like, I'm going to make 500 K this month or anything like that, which that's great too. But they were like, I matter. (laughs) My needs matter. I deserve to feel safe. I deserve to be a priority to the people who are a priority to me. I deserve friendships that reciprocate the level of energy and care that I put into them, right? Affirmations that contradicted those unconscious behaviors that I kept falling into. And I swear to fucking God, it worked for me, which is because I think affirmations make the unconscious conscious. And a huge part of this work is about becoming aware. The next category is the external stuff. What we do in the outside world, making the new choice, right? In my case, like this, this is the big thing, making a new choice after believing that my needs matter and that they make sense is then making sure that my needs are prioritized by me, if by no one else. This work is much harder, in my opinion, than the other one. And that's because I learned to fawn and people please, not because it was a good time, but because as a child, my brain told me, you have to do this or you're in serious danger. And guess what? My brain never unlearned that as an adult. So standing up for myself felt like standing before the executioner squad. The fear in my heart, when I tell you I thought I might pass out multiple times standing up for myself, it's not an exaggeration. So stepping through that fear was a major turning point for me because I learned, wow, I am still alive. I'm okay. I fucking did it. And over time, I've been able to strengthen that muscle. But whatever the new choice is, whether it's to voice your needs or to stay in the conversation when you want to bolt or to be vulnerable about your feelings, whatever it is that reorients you to having a trustworthy relationship with your authentic self, start doing it. Make the decision to go that new direction, even if you have to take little tiny baby steps, even if you have to start with like sending an email instead of having that face-to-face conversation, right? And the last piece of the external work that I'll share is to let go of people who insist that you stay the way you were before or who reinforce your old beliefs and ideas that kept you from being in a healthy relationship with yourself. Not because those people are bad, but because they're bad for you, right? And of course, I don't think cutting people off and being like, fuck you is necessarily always the answer. But I do think that if you've given someone multiple opportunities to show up for you in this new way and they can't or won't for whatever reason, you can feel good about walking away because now you get to make space for people who can show up for you. It's part of the change process and it's okay. Even if it's scary, even if they get mad at you, even if they get sad at you, right? You can trust yourself to make those decisions now. 
I had an incredible episode on growing up in chaotic childhoods. It was one of the first episodes I did. And Liz Hummer, who was a therapist who came on that episode, talked about her dad having borderline personality disorder. And when she started setting boundaries with him as an adult, he told her he would kill himself. She stayed true to her boundaries, which was like a huge, you know, choosing, making that new choice. Right. And eventually he did commit suicide and it was obviously tragic and awful. But her story is so brave and inspiring because she got to a point where she really deeply prioritized herself over his disordered thinking. Right. And that's ultimately kind of what it comes down to with people is like, if you it, uh, it's not all going to look like that, obviously, and, and hopefully suicide is not a part of the equation. But so often, if a person is asking us to make a choice in that way, it's because there's there's just something off, right? I don't want to call it necessarily disordered thinking, but there's something off where you, where you don't get to be the priority in this in this story. Back to Liz, ultimately, her life opened up in incredible ways, beautiful ways. She found a life partner. They had a child. They recently bought property and moved to Costa Rica. Like, I I still follow her on Insta. So hers is obviously such an extreme example. But, you know, if she can do it, so can we, right? We can let go of the people who can't or won't prioritize our well-being so that we make space for the people who can. Can I jump in here real quick? Yeah, we tend to have this idea that we can change how people feel. And mm -hmm. so we make our decisions based on, is this going to make the other person feel uncomfortable? Are they going to feel disappointed? Are they going to feel angry? And so there's this idea that we are now in control of someone else's emotions and we're not like there, there's actually nothing we can ever do that will make us in control of someone's emotions. I can give you a cupcake and you can think, this is fantastic. I love cupcakes. And then you're going to feel, I don't know, what emotion will you feel if I give you a cupcake and you think this is fantastic? Uh, excited, jubilant. Totally. But if I give you a cupcake and you think, oh crap, I didn't bring her anything. What are you going to feel? Or if I'm just kind of being a dick and I'm like, I said, I like chocolate and you brought vanilla, right? Right. Exactly. So you're going to start feeling angry. And so all of that actually comes from what we feel comes from us, not from the other person. It's how we interpret it. What glasses are we wearing that day? What happened earlier? Did we eat? Are we hangry? Are we tired? Are we hungover? Have people not, I don't know, have people disrespected us in the past? That's all going to shape it. So, you know, that example that you shared, it's like hearing it feels so painful and her actions aren't what did that. Right. His actions are what did that. His perception, not her. And I love that you bring that in because uh, when we are raised in these homes and, and our, our parents are abusive, as children, we build that muscle, that um, that thought muscle, right? That's like, I'm responsible for this because children always think that they're responsible. So we mm -hmm. go, it's my job to fix it. I'll fawn. I'll like, I remember I told it, I told this story in one of the episodes oh, when I moved in with my dad, when I was 10 and it was like terrible. One of the things that I did was I started arranging his drugs in the morning for when he got up. So they would be ready to go. <laughs> and the idea was I will Exactly. I will feed the bear. I will make the bear more comfortable. It's on me. 
it's my, I am the one who um, is responsible for my dad, right? Rather than uh, I'm responsible for me or whatever sort of healthier uh, attitude we should have, we should have learned as kids. But yeah, that's exactly it. So when we bring that into adulthood, we bring that, that thinking into adulthood too. This is my responsibility to fix this when it's not. Well, this reminds me, have you ever heard of the just world bias? No. What's that? So as soon as I say it, you'll know it. It's that idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. We get what we deserve. And we learn this from the moment we're born, right? If we eat our broccoli, we're going to get dessert. If we listen to our teacher, we're not going to get detention. We're going to we're gonna get to go out on recess. If we listen to our parents, we're going to keep our privileges. But if we do the opposite and we break the rules, we're getting detention. If we talk back to our parents, we're going to get yelled at, right? And so we learn very quickly. If we act a certain way and it's good, it's the way that other people want, we're going to have good consequences. So then when something bad happens, when something difficult happens, we don't immediately think, oh, well, sometimes people who do good get good and sometimes they get bad, we think, oh, this happened because I did bad. Even if you were great, even if you didn't have a single like connection to this instance or to this situation, you still think this is because of me. Right. I was bad. But it's a bias. Wow, that is so fascinating. That is so yeah, I you're absolutely right. We do learn that sort of binary when we're kids. Like if mm-hmm. if you're in trouble, it's because you did something wrong. But for example, like in my house, um, having any kind of motion emotion that wasn't just, I approve of my mom 24 seven meant that we were in trouble, even when we hadn't done anything wrong. Right. Even when my mom was out of control and we were upset about it. Right. And so, yeah. Oh my God. That's so fascinating. Well, okay. Um, this is perfect. I, cause I was just about to jump into the questions with you. So I want to, I want to ask you, what are some of the common self-limiting beliefs that we create after trauma or after making a decision that we regret? And how do we interrupt those when we're trying to trust ourselves again? Like, what are those thoughts that stand in the way of us trusting ourselves again? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you hit on a lot of that. It's that belief of there's something wrong with me. I can't do anything right. I'm a fuck up. Um, I'll always be alone. It's, uh, it's, I can't show people I'm a failure because if I show people I'm a failure, then how can you trust yourself? Right. Um, I need to be in control. I can't make mistakes and all of them, they're going to sound a little bit different, but I think that the core message is always the same. It's don't mess up. Whatever you do, do not allow people to see that you have messed up. And it comes from, I mean, it's heavy if you think about it, but I think the most important way of of actually interrupting them is by figuring out why they're here. Because if you take a step back, you were able, as you were speaking, to come up with this explanation of why you had that thought. You connected it to your past experiences. And usually the limiting beliefs that we end up believing are related to either something that was said to us. So a parent actually calling us stupid, the schoolyard bully saying that we're fat, or, um, you know, your friends or your teacher telling you, you know, don't even bother doing that. You'll never get it. You don't even try out for the talent show because you won't get it. Right. All of that. So we start to either believe it because it sounds like something someone has said, or it's a conclusion that we came to after a difficult event. 
And that usually is connected to, like I said, that just real bias. If something bad happened here, it's probably because of me. But so often we have this limiting belief and then we think, and this feels really crummy. I don't like it. I feel uncomfortable. I don't want to have it. And we try to push it away. But that does the opposite because we've never been able to figure out why exactly we have it. And it's once we figure out why we have it that we can start challenging it Mm. and start asking yourself, why is it that a mistake is the worst thing that can possibly happen? And what if it is a mistake? Because we often think that if there's a bad outcome, an unpleasant outcome, the outcome is not what you expected or what you wanted in that situation or what somebody else wanted in that situation, then you messed up. But did you mess up? Or is it just that it didn't pan out the way you wanted it to? Is this an opportunity or is this actually a failure? It takes me back to, have you heard that parable of the man and the horse that comes up a lot in recovery? No. I'm going to butcher it. I'm really bad with with parables or kind of reframing what people have said. But uh, so, so there is this man who has a horse and one day the horse runs away and everybody in the village says, oh, my gosh, it's so terrible. You lost this horse. This was an important horse. And the man's like, oh, it is what it is. And uh, and then one day the horse comes back and it brings another horse and everybody goes, this is incredible. Now you have two horses. It's double the wealth. And the man's like, uh. Then his son's riding the horse. He falls off the horse. He breaks his leg. Everybody goes, this is terrible. And then um, there's a draft for the war. And the son, because of his broken leg, can't go into the war. And everybody goes, this is incredible. Depending on where you are in your life, what the frame of mind is that you're looking at it from will determine whether it's good or bad. And so this decision that you made is actually just a decision. It's not good. It's not bad. It's a decision that you made, probably the best one you could have made in that moment in time. And then what do you do with that outcome? And so I think part of learning to trust yourself is being able to reframe this idea that if you make a decision, it's either good or it's bad. It's either, you know, you were good and a good thing happened or you were bad and a bad thing happened. It's just you made a decision and something happened. Mm. Oh my God. It's so good. And it reminds me of this Ted talk that I saw a while ago where they were like the, um, the number one factor when they look at children being successful or have, or like growing up to have success, the number one, uh, factor that sort of helped them determine whether or not someone would be successful later. It wasn't intelligence. It wasn't like being able to socialize with others. Well, it was resilience. It was being able to say, well, that didn't work out the way I wanted. Let's try again. Right. Instead of being like, I'm a complete fucking failure and I'm never, I'm never doing that again. Right. Like the difference, the the one thing that they found was the common thread and whether or not people, um, had success. Although I do want to say, I don't understand. I don't know what success meant in that scenario. Um, I'm assuming it's professional, but maybe I don't know what their factors were, but for whatever it was, for whatever, however they were measuring it, resilience was the number one thing. And I think, yeah, that's, that is so powerful. That's perfect. That's so powerful. And that is how when we get into that black and white thinking, right. They say in, in 12 step programs, they say black and white thinking is traumatized thinking. When we get into that, like, oh, I made, I made a choice. It didn't turn out how I wanted. Okay. Let's, what did we learn? Let's keep going. That is when we're coming from that space, it's like, Ooh, I'm getting closer to really being able to trust that I can make a good decision because I'm not shutting off. I'm giving myself another shot here. 
I think it's so important that you set the resilience piece. And that also ties in a lot to how we're raised. So if you have parents who every time you make a mistake, say, you're such a screw up, stop messing up, or there's this huge outburst, you're going to develop, it's going to be hard for you to develop resilience because you're getting wired to think that mistakes are bad. If you've got your parents or even just an adult or somebody in your life, when you mess up, who says, hey, that really sucked for you. What do you want to do next time? That starts opening up that door for, hey, there's more possibilities here. Maybe this isn't so bad. This isn't final. You stop beating yourself up as much. So if you've got little ones in your life, it's also important to keep that in the back of your mind is how you react is going to really influence. It's going to shape their their own beliefs. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you this. When we grew up experiencing um, CPTSD, right? Complex post-traumatic stress, for example, from narcissistic abuse, that's part of my story. We often cling to the fawning trauma response as a coping mechanism, which puts us at a real disadvantage in terms of trusting ourselves because we have no idea what we want for ourselves, right? We're so wired to be codependent or pathologically empathetic to always be prioritizing someone else's feelings over ours. When complex PTSD or fawning are at play, dissociation, right? What does it look like to regain a connection to ourselves so we can trust ourselves again? I think that's a really important question. And I think the distinction is that um, fawning and dissociation aren't actually coping. They're survival. Mm -hmm. And when you are in survival mode, you can't trust yourself to make logical decisions. You can't um, you can't look at reconnecting with yourself because at that point, your priority isn't what are my preferences? What are my likes? They're how do I survive this situation, right? And if you think about what happens to your body when you're in that state, like if you were to go into the fight or flight stress response, which would set off in the exact same kind of stressful situations as fawn would, then your digestive system literally shuts off because you don't need to digest when you're worried about survival. So if your fawn is kicking in, you do not have to focus on connecting with yourself because you have to focus on how to survive the bear, right? How do you survive the danger? So I think a lot of survivors put this, it's almost like this emphasis on, I need to learn to trust. And I think before you can learn to trust is I need to learn to be safe. Because if you think about it from this perspective of what is the purpose of fawn, and if the purpose of fawn is to get you through a difficult situation without you getting into it's survival, right? Fawn is survival. Then you can actually trust yourself because your body is doing exactly what your body needs to do in order to survive. And so children start fawning because they're in an environment where they cannot fight, they cannot flee, they cannot freeze. And so they figure out that fawn is the only way to survive. And in as their children, connecting with their likes, with their dislikes, with um, their preferences, learning to trust themselves, that is that is not a priority. Right. So they're doing what they have to do. And actually, there's a lot of trust there because they're not thinking about it. It's happening automatically. If I step out into the uh, into a road, I can actually trust that my fight, flight, freeze, fawn will kick off before I even realize that there's a truck heading towards me. And chances are I'm going to step back because something told me to do that, right? I can trust that my instinct will kick in. 
The problem is, is that if you've survived abuse of any sort, 15, 20 years later, you've moved out, you're no longer dependent on these people. Your brain has been wired to see potential disappointment or disconnection with others as dangerous. Oh my God. And so it's being able to convince yourself that that is not danger. That's what's going to allow you to trust yourself because the the survival mechanism is at that point not going to need to kick off. Your nervous system isn't aroused. And then you can start focusing on trusting yourself. This is so good. Holy shit. This safety piece is blowing my mind. Yeah, that's the key, right? It's like reorienting ourselves around safety as adults. Yeah, I think to start, it's not expecting that you're just going to not fawn or you're not going to not. Uh, people please. I think it's really allowing yourself to fawn, allowing yourself to people please, and then taking a step back, pouring yourself a cup of tea and going, why did I do that? What was the purpose of that? What did I think is the worst case scenario that would have happened if I did not do this? And then is that actually the worst thing? If it's that they would have been disappointed with me? Well, what's the worst case scenario if my friend is disappointed with me? They'll tell me they're disappointed with me and then they'll probably call me the next day to go do something or to have a conversation, right? And if if the outcome of that situation is going to be that you lose that person, then how bad of an outcome is it to lose that person? So in the moment, I don't think until you've done this enough time and you've strengthened that me- muscle, you've formed that pathway, I don't think you're going to be able to do it. So it's those little steps after it happens, challenge it. And eventually it'll start changing the way you think in the moment and it'll it'll prevent you from acting in that way. Oh, I love that because it gives us a way to of not putting so much pressure on ourselves. Cause I know for me, I've been like, Oh, I fucked up. I did it again. I, you know, I had a situation recently where someone was like, um, don't you love this thing? And I was like, yeah, but I did not love that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I had to talk it over with my therapist and I was like, mad, right? Like I was angry at myself. And and I think that's a piece for me that um, has come up so much in this conversation is I don't trust myself because I do this thing, right? Like I do the people pleasing thing. And, and I love that. I love what you're saying because it, it gives us an opportunity to go, you're not going to do that thing right away. Your brain literally told you, you could die if you don't fun if you don't whatever it is right whatever the thing is you don't you don't just like leave the situation and then go good thing that's behind me i'll never do that again no you like that pattern is your pattern now and so there is a pro- it's a process it's like yeah i get to have a minute where i keep where i keep doing this thing and i love myself and i'm safe and and what i did in this situation i was like fuck i did the thing and then that same person kind of um did another after that was like, don't you love this thing? And I was like, you know, it's not my style, but I'm glad that you like it. And she didn't love me saying that, (laughs) but she got over it pretty quick and then it was fine. And that's on her. She's allowed to have an emotional reaction to what you say. She actually needs to, because our emotions are how we process the world. They're how we process the people around us. We also get over them because they're short lived. Yeah. And I don't have to be like, oh, I did something wrong because she's she's having a moment, right? Like she didn't love that. And that was okay. I was like, I felt my feelings come up around it. I was like, oh, she's she's mad. She's going to be mad at me. And I was like, 
and there was even a part of me that was like, do I go apologize? Do I go? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm taking some space. I'm going to like be over here doing my thing. I'm not mad at her. Maybe she's mad at me. She can let me know. And then like 20 minutes later, everything was fine. And so doing those little things is actually how you start trusting yourself again. Because we often think of trust as I have trust or I don't have trust. But I want picture trust as a spectrum. And in the middle is no information. And so you start off in the middle. You don't actually start with no trust. You start in the middle. And as you engage with the world, as you engage with different people, and this applies not just to self-trust, but also trusting other people around us, because sometimes trauma messes with that too. And then seeing, hey, after, so if we look at the, the idea of people pleasing or fawning, after you had one of those situations and you you take a step back and you start reflecting on it, well, now your sense of trust is actually going to move a little bit towards the positive because you've been able to identify the reasons why. So now you're able to build a bit of more trust for yourself of, of first noticing that it's happening and then being able to analyze it. And so next time that might happen a bit more quickly and your trust in yourself to be able to identify it is going to grow, which means that you're setting the foundation for you to also develop trust in your ability to stop it before it happens in certain situations. And then there might be, um, there might be events where you really don't catch it, or it's a situation that really messes with you. And that might take a little bit of trust away. And that's okay. Another situation will come around or you can create a situation, then you build more of it. So look at it as a spectrum as opposed to I'm messing it up or I'm killing it. Yeah. And it also leads us to feeling so bad about ourselves when we're in that binary, when they're when we're in that black and white, because it's like either everything, either you were perfect or you were shit. Right. And so this gives us space to be like, yeah, I'm working on it. I'm somewhere in between, which is, it was just like, how much easier is it to keep going if you are in a process rather than it's all or nothing. And, you, and there's so much on the line every time. Totally. Totally. Okay. Let me ask you this. So when we're undoing the damage of people pleasing and fawning, or even when we've made like let's just say one decision. I don't know, maybe they screamed at someone in the grocery store. Now they can't go back in the grocery, whatever, whatever it is, right? A, a decision that we regret. There can be this knee jerk reaction to go in completely the opposite direction. Like that could look a lot of ways, like telling someone they can get fucked, taking up all the space and not compromising ever again, or, you know, whatever it looks like to go in a complete 180 from where you were before. If it was like the grocery store, maybe it's like now I, I never express when I'm angry ever again because I fucked that up that time or whatever. When we're healing our relationship to ourselves and regaining our voices, how do we make sure we're not sort of being assholes to the other people in that way? Right. And like that we're staying in a space that's fair and mindful of both ourselves and others. I call this the teeter totter. And it's part of recovery, which I mean, so first, it's kind of a good sign because it means that you've realized that what you were doing before isn't working and you're trying to figure out how to do the opposite of it. Your goal is to find the middle path of being able to, um, you don't want to be in the extremes. You want to, you want to walk the tightrope, right? But I think it's really great that you're able to go to the extreme because something's changing. And so again, it's, and I wonder if this is actually my Libra coming out, but again, it's cutting yourself some slack and noticing like, if you think about it, somebody who was raised in an environment where they were given opportunities to, um, to not fawn, they weren't stuck in survival mode. They, 
probably had situations early on where they went to different extremes and they weren't really paying attention to what other people needed. And so maybe they were taking all of the space or dominating a, a conversation or they were being the asshole who was telling people to shut up or they were the ones who people pleased a little bit, right? They were able to go, to test the waters and figure out how to do these things, how to interact with people, how to interact with the world in a way that was helpful. And so if you're at the point where you're teeter-tottering, it means you're at the point in your life where it's safe for you to start exploring. And so it makes sense, wouldn't it, that you're now learning this new skill and you're going to fall flat on your face as you try it a few times. Right. I think it makes sense. And so that, so it's, it's acknowledging that when it happens, but you also don't want it to happen all the time because you want to be able to go into the grocery store and you want to have relationships and you want to have connections and all of that. So I really think of it as you want a perspective take because you want to connect with the other person and figure out why are they responding the way they're responding. And you want to also understand what's coming up for you. Why do you want to respond the way that you want to respond? And if you're listening to this, you're probably going, how the hell am I going to figure this out in a split second when I'm in this situation, I have to make a decision. I'm not logically thinking about it often. And so it's tuning into your emotions. What are you feeling? If you're feeling anger in that moment, allow yourself a minute to breathe through it and figure out why you're feeling angry. Are you feeling angry because you feel like this person is taking your power away? And so now you want to yell to take your power back. Because is yelling back actually going to allow you to take your power back? Mm. Or if you're in a situation where, I don't know, you're at a party and you're talking and someone tries to cut you off. And in that moment, you feel like you want to keep talking. Is that because you actually have more to say? Or is it because you're now at this point of, I'm so sick of having spent my life being cut, being cut off that now I, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to keep talking. And so it's, it's again, just being aware of what's going on in here. You can't see me. It's a podcast. I'm touching my head. Um, what's going on in your mind? What's happening in your emotions? And trying to put the two together so you can make a decision that's, that's wise, that actually gives you the long-term benefits or long-term outcome that you'd like to see. Mm. And that's another, it's just another space where it's like, you've got to give yourself some grace. You just have to, yes. well, I don't want to say you have to, you don't have to, but it would be so lovely if you could give yourself some space to um, have these trial and errors and get to know yourself in this new way. And just kind of, I love what you say, like, ask yourself why, why, why did it come up for you? Right? Like, and I love that example of um, someone cuts you off because when you are a people pleaser and a fawner, the instinct is to be like, oh, someone else wants to talk. I'm going to shut down. And, and that thing of being like, excuse me, I was talking, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like maybe you don't have anything else to say, but maybe it's actually a victory because you took up space, right? So, and you're going to have to do the extreme and you're going to have to do the thing that doesn't work as you try to figure out how to do it the way that is going to work. That's incredible. That's a win in my eyes. Now, if you're consistently taking up space and you're pulling it away from others and it keeps happening, that's different. But every so often, like it's, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever been the anxious one in class and then you finally put up your hand and just gibberish comes out, but at least you put up your hand and at least you tried. Next time it's going to be easier. Yeah. It, it just feels like it's the pressure is off a little bit. Like, yeah, you're going to mess up. That's fine. It's part, it's actually part of your victory process to mess up. 
So it's fine. Also, if you've realized, and this is part of, of regaining trust for yourself as well is if you've realized, Hey, maybe you were hurtful when you teeter tottered and uh, you said something hurtful, you reacted in a way that was out of character. You can also apologize. Ugh. Yes. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. Um, I have found as an adult that I really love apologizing. And I think in part, it's because I was raised with parents who couldn't apologize. And so I, when I am able to apologize, it makes, I have this like internal, like, fuck yeah. Like there are a lot of people who can't do that, you know, or who won't, or who feel too afraid, right. To admit that like, Ooh, that was a misstep. Right. For me, I, I love not, not when it's like, not doing the over apology where it's like, Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And I'm always sorry. But when I know that I've made a misstep, cause I will, cause we all will, right. Being the person who's able to apologize and say, hey, I'm really sorry that I did that. That was, that wasn't my best self. I feel like an adult when I'm able to do that. Totally. And it shows that you've also started unwiring some of the wiring from your childhood because it's showing if you can apologize for something, it means that you can acknowledge that you made a mistake and you're also acknowledging to yourself that it's okay to make a mistake. Mm, If your parents never apologized, you learned mistakes are not forgivable almost, right? And you only have one way to do it. Whereas if you're able to start apologizing, it means that you're there's more flexibility in your thinking. So I love that you're apologizing. And, and I also love that you pointed out not to the extreme because you don't want to take up space and then apologize for taking up space. It's more so you took up all the space. You didn't let other people share the space, right? Or you went to the store and you yelled at the person. Well, what if you now go in and say, hey, I had a terrible day. I'm really sorry about that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and then I'm wondering if this other question that I was going to ask, I'm wondering if we sort of already answered the question. You tell me, because the other part of that question is trusting yourself means trusting your anger, right? But for so many of us, anger was stripped from us early on. And I know for myself, even disagreeing with someone politely can feel very scary, like I kind of mentioned before. And when that's part of our story, how do we start integrating anger back into our lives and trusting that it's safe to have it? Yes. Anger is so important, but it can also be incredibly tricky because sometimes we're feeling anger because anger is actually what's warranted in that situation. And sometimes we're feeling anger because anger is trying to protect us from a smaller or an uncomfortable, less powerful emotion. Because if you think about it, anger is actually very powerful. It makes us feel big. It makes us feel strong. It makes us feel in control in many ways. And if we look at emotions like sadness or shame or guilt, those are very small emotions that make us want to hide. And so what can sometimes happen is that we're we're responding with anger. We're feeling anger when really there's something else happening beneath. And it can be helpful to actually pause with ourselves and figure out, is does this emotion make sense given the situation? Or does this emotion make sense given what I'm thinking? If it makes sense given what you're thinking, chances are it's not actually fitting the situation, right? If it makes sense, given the situation, you can trust that anger is there because it's anger. Whereas if it's connected to your thought and a lot of in cognitive processing therapy, which is one of the the therapies for, um, for PTSD, we call them stuck points because they're these beliefs that we've developed that bring up emotions that 
we get stuck in and they prevent us from being able to process the trauma or, or to move forward. So the most important way to start trusting your emotion is actually determine, does it fit given the situation or does it fit given potentially a problematic belief that I've got? Mm. Can, wait, can you give an example of what one of those beliefs might be? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, my partner every so often will leave cabinets open in the kitchen and it, it just sometimes drives me nuts. Sometimes it doesn't phase me at all. And one day I came home and I saw the cabinets were open and I thought to myself, like, they're totally doing this to mess with me. Like I, I've said multiple times, let's keep the cabinets closed. We've got a cat. He crawls up in there. Let's keep the cabinets closed. And so this person must not respect what I'm saying. And I got angry. But the situation, if you think of a situation coming home and your cabinets are, are open, does anger actually fit? Mm. Not really. It's just your cabinets are open. You go over there, you close them. The way I made sense of it, the belief that I created in that moment was it's because they don't respect me. It's because they don't think that what I have to say is important. It's because they're trying to mess with me. And so that anger is very much related to those thoughts. And every time I have one of those thoughts, the anger is going to pop up. But does the anger fit? My partner actually really does respect me. And he takes most of the things that I say really to heart. And if I give feedback, most of the time he tries to implement it. And chances are, if the cabinets were left open, it's probably because he was on a, in a rush or I was on a call and he didn't want to slam them around to disturb me. Logically, I can tell you that. In the moment when I just react, I can't. And so that's mm -hmm. where being able to take that step back and figure out, is it from the situation? Or is it from the from the thought? If it doesn't fit the situation, if you're trying to bend how it could potentially fit from the situation, you're dealing with a manufactured emotion. And so, no, you don't want to trust that emotion because that emotion isn't actually. It's uh, it's almost like it's not it's not natural. It's not real in that in that moment. We've created it. But if the anger fits, if you're looking at a situation, the anger does fit and anger fits just in case you want to know what situations anger is actually warranted in. It's if someone has taken something away from you or somebody is attacking you, mm. that's where anger makes sense. And so if those things are happening, you want to listen to anger because anger is going to allow you to figure out, hey, something's wrong here. Mm. What about what about if someone is disrespecting you? Is that a, a time when anger is warranted? Absolutely. Yeah. If someone's disrespecting you, anger is telling you someone's disrespecting you. Right. That gives you the motivation. Because if you think of emotions, emotions are communicators and they're motivators. So it communicated to you. It's saying, hey, someone's disrespecting you. And then it's motivating you to now advocate for yourself. It's motivating you. It's giving you the fuel to say, Hey, that I really don't like it when you speak to me in this way. Yeah. Or even like lying is another one, right? Where like, that's a disrespect, right? Where it's like, yeah, if you're being lied to or yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we could think of a few, but yeah, I really love that's such a great distinction because I think those of us will, I'll speak for myself. I grew up in a home where the parents had big anger all the time. And so, and I wasn't allowed to have any anger. So, right. It was th these extremes. And so as an adult, when it comes to, um, trusting myself with anger, whether it's like, I can trust myself to stay calm when someone else is angry, or I can, 
um, give a voice to my anger in a responsible way. Like I have felt all over the place. Like I don't fucking know how to do this. So I love that there, there's this like, okay, what's the thought? What is, what's the situation? Is the anger warranted? I can find out in these ways is, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, there is one other piece here. And so I think this connects to, um, to your upbringing, especially because you weren't allowed to have anger. And when you saw anger, anger was really explosive and it was really intense and it was frightful. And so you probably developed this belief. I I don't want to tell me if if I'm wrong, but you probably developed this belief that if you were to feel angry, you would lose control or it would feel overwhelming. Um, I know that's something that comes up for a lot of people. And so if that is the case, then allowing yourself, it's almost like you have to start building trust that when you feel this powerful emotion, you're not going to be overwhelmed by it. You're not going to be the same person that your parents were. You're not going to cause harm. It's okay to feel it. And so when you allow yourself to experience some of that anger and nothing happens, you don't destroy things. You also start building trust in your ability to feel the full spectrum of emotions. And I just want to point out an emotion lasts about 90 seconds. So how much damage can you actually do in 90 seconds? If you allow your emotion to kind of come in, ride the wave of it, it's going to intensify and then it's going to come back down. There's not a lot of damage that can happen in 90 seconds, but there's a lot of relief that you will feel when you allow yourself to tune into it. Man, I will tell you my my newfound relationship to anger and the amount of pillows that I have punched. Uh, it's just been wonderful. <laughs> I was like screaming in my car. Big fan, like really into it. I, I don't know that I ever felt a fear that I would lose control with anger, but I do think that is something I've heard other people talk about a lot. I think I felt like um, I just wouldn't be loved. Like I just, I couldn't have anger because I just wouldn't be loved. So, um, me having a new relationship and like trusting that I will still be loved after being angry. If maybe even when the anger is not called for, I don't know. Like if I can take responsibility for that later, knowing, Hey, the people who really love me will be like, Hey, I didn't love that. But yeah, thank you for apologizing. Let's talk about it. Right. You know? I think it's so important that you said that because sometimes we're going to, a lot of the time we're going to experience anger and it's not going to make sense given the situation. It's actually going to be something that we've manufactured. It's going to be related to our thoughts, right? We can't, we're not going to be perfect. It's going to happen. And so when you're in a new relationship, you're starting off, if you think back to that spectrum of of trust, you're starting off not in the negatives, you're actually starting off in the middle of no information. And so taking that risk and allowing yourself to experience anger, whether it's warranted or not warranted, it's just there and see what the reaction is. That's how you start building trust in those other people. If you showed that anger and they shut you down completely, they ghosted you, they stopped answering you, or they got physical with you. Now, you know that your trust is moving into the negatives. You can't Mm. trust that person with your anger. But if that person had responded to you with, you know, they also got angry at first, but then you were able to sit down and talk about it and they still loved you regardless of this happening, you're moving into the positives. And at the same time, you're also moving into the positive that you can trust yourself to experience anger and not have it derail your life. 
Yes. God damn it. This is, this is, I feel like I need to take notes. I need to listen to this again and take notes because that's so right. This whole process of learning to trust anger, who it's safe to have anger with when we can express anger in a safe way, what that, what that whole process looks like maybe should even be its own episode, but I think it's like, it is such a process for those of us who fond, you know, who, who learn to people, please. I have one last question for you. So I talked about this earlier in the episode. I had that experience where I was sleeping with someone I knew was bad fucking news, didn't respect me, made me feel used, blah, blah, who I very much yearned for and wanted to date seriously. And I would always tell myself, like, I'm never going to do this again. And I remember one time a girlfriend at that time asked me, well, there's obviously something that you're getting out of this or else you wouldn't be doing it. So what is it? And I was like, well, I feel desired when he calls me and I feel powerful that he wants to see me. And my friend was like, well, you deserve to feel powerful and desired. Like you should go for it. And I did. I was like, oh, well, he just hit me up. So, okay. Right. Like it was obviously the wrong fucking decision. But it was such a confusing moment. And I think we confront these a lot. We have one voice inside us that says, this is bad news. No, no, no. And then we have another that says, but I really, really want it. When we feel that intense inner conflict, how do we know how to move forward in a way that that reflects back to us that we can trust ourselves to make the right choice? So first, your friend was almost there. (laughs) And then just fell short, which is so sad because you reached out, you wanted, it's almost like in that moment, you, you were kind of fawning too. You were trying to figure out, I I need this validation from somebody else. And you almost had it like that first question of what are you getting out of this was incredible. What I'm getting in this situation, you were looking for empowerment and you were, it's almost like you were trying to get your power. And you found that when you were with this person, when they contacted you, probably because you were getting the attention from them, you were getting that external validation, you felt powerful. The problem is, is that that situation wasn't actually empowering because empowerment is when you're able to make a decision and it ends up being positive for you in the long run. It's consequences aren't negative in the long run, but positive in the short term. It's just, it's good for you, right? And so in this situation, I don't think it was empowerment. I think it was almost like impulsivity, right? In the short term, I'm going to feel really good. And I, it's kind of like an addiction. It gives you that hit, you feel it, but then you know afterwards it's going to be unpleasant. And so it's going to keep coming up, especially for people who who are wired for external validation, where they're going to feel pulled to make these decisions impulsively, it comes back to making that wise decision. So connect with yourself, ask yourself, why do I want to do this from an emotional standpoint? What is like, what is my emotion telling me right now as to why I want to do this or why I don't want to do this? And then ask yourself, what does my logic tell me? What's the actual fact of this situation? If I go and see this person, how is this going to end? And when I say logic and facts, I don't mean beliefs because beliefs aren't always logical or factual, but I mean, like, what's the evidence? Have you ever left this person and felt good about yourself? Or has every time that you left this person, you felt terrible? 
And if that's the case, now you want to take your emotions and you want to put your um, your logic together. And this is really, if you've heard of dialectical behavior therapy or walking the, or a wise mind decision, that's really what we're taking, what we're talking about here. We're taking your emotion mind, we're taking your logic mind. And when you combine the two, that's the only way you can make a wise decision, which is that decision that you're going to feel comfortable with. And so I'm not saying don't go out, don't have that hookup, don't see that person, but go see that person. If that's the decision that you end up making, knowing what the consequence will be. Mm. So you're not let down and you can plan ahead of time. You can say, okay, I really want to go see this person because I want an immediate hit. And I know I'm going to feel crummy for several days afterwards. So I'm going to make sure that I've got pleasant activities to engage in afterwards. I'm going to call my friend because I want them there if I need to talk it out. It's almost like a safety plan if you end up getting into this difficult situation. And then that way, you're, you're empowered because you're doing what is within your control. You can't change how that person is going to act towards you, but you can change how you respond to it. Or you might decide don't go, right? You know, it's going to be a terrible outcome. You know, it's, uh, it's not going to give you that long-term satisfaction. So then don't go find other ways to fill that, that need for validation. This is so, first of all, I just want to draw attention to the fact that you like literally created an equation for wisdom. (laughs) You were, which is like, what? I did not know that that wasn't an abstraction, but it's like the logic piece with the emotions, right? Like, I, I take the facts that I have available to me and I, and I asked, you know, what is the emotion behind this? And I put those together and that's how I tap into my wise mind. And so first of all, I want to just acknowledge that, but also just this piece around being really brutally, just really looking at those facts. And when we've learned to wear those rose colored glasses and dissociate and whatever that looks like this is a new behavior for us really dealing in facts. What has this person, how has this person shown up time and time again? What do I know to be true based on what I've, based on the evidence, right? Not based on what I wish were true, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the piece of us that pulls us into making decisions that later make us feel like we can't trust ourselves because we weren't dealing in the facts. When we start really saying, Hey, Every time I hook up with this guy, I feel I go home crying. I feel like shit for a week afterwards. I feel it it brings up all of my insecurities around whether or not I'm a worthwhile person. I do feel that hit and I deal with that fact too. Yes, I feel that great feeling at, at the beginning. Is it worth it? And I love that you put out there that like, right, okay, maybe the best decision there is like, don't hook up with this guy. But if we're going to create a plan around it that also is dealing in the facts. Either way, we're dealing in the facts. And I think for so many of us who grew up in abusive homes, we just didn't learn how to do that. And 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 we went we took that into adulthood. And so I just think that's such a lovely, a lovely takeaway from this. And so, so, so important. I mean, you weren't you weren't taught how to, and you were also watching the adults. So the role models in your life make decisions not on fact, but on emotion. So there's so much that was conditioning you to do that. That's such a good point. 
the idea of that wise mind decision. So combining your emotions, combining your logic, I don't think that just applies here. I think it applies to almost any situ- any decision that you need to make, because that's how you're going to make a decision that's actually going to be true to what you want. Right. Amelia, this conversation has just blown me away. Thank you so, so, so much for coming on. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Um, So I am based out of Toronto, Ontario in Canada. If you want to find me or connect with me, then you can reach out to me either by email. I'm at uh, Amelia at newmoonpsychotherapy.ca. Newmoonpsychotherapy.ca is the practice that I run. And uh, we're also on Instagram. So it's at newmoonpsychotherapy. Great. Okay. Well, I'm going to follow you immediately. (laughs) Thank you. So excited about that. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party. You can also follow um you can also follow me at Remy's R-E-M-E-Z. That's my individual account. Or you can email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, definitely hit me up. I'm always on and like this topic today was uh, a suggestion from a listener. So please let me know. And if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It makes a huge difference. And it honestly means so much to me. I don't know what's going on with Spotify. I know a while ago, there was a glitch where you could only give pods four stars for some reason. I don't know if that's still happening, but um, Apple I know is all good. Also, if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, $10. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash the Patrama party and scroll down to the support button. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.